Yes, we're here. It's the movie hour. Good morning, Daniel Mulvey. Good morning, Richard. How are In you? from the wilds of Northumberland. Yes, I'm a bit bedraggled this morning, <laughs> but uh, it's good to be back on air. Good, good. Right, yes. shall we uh, crack on with it? I think we should, yes. Yes, lots to do today, so we'll start off with the local films. There aren't too many of them to tell you about, but the uh, Playhouse on Thursday evening, 7.30, has got The Debt. Yeah, which is you know, a pretty unremarkable but decent thriller from John Madden, who's the guy who made Shakespeare in Love. I think the the, the period set stuff in the 1960s is a great deal more interesting than the stuff with Helen Mirren in from the 90s. But no, it does its job as a decent, substantial Cold War thriller in the vein of something like Marathon Man or The Boys from Brazil. Okay, up at the uh, Maltings in Berwick, it's uh, this afternoon at 2 o'clock and tomorrow afternoon at 12.30. Dolphin Tale. Which is incredibly predictable and uh, is essentially free willy in 3D, which, you know, if you've got nothing else to do, then fine, but not much excuse otherwise. And then on to Monday evening, The Inbetweeners. Well, we'll refer you to Lewis Denny for main opinion. I still think it's a little bit derivative, but it's clearly hit its target audience, so, I mean, if, if you're under the age of, say, 18 and you haven't seen it already, then go and check it out. On to Tuesday evening, Midnight in Paris. Yeah, Woody Allen's best film for about five years. I mean, it does look back to his performance in Play It Against Sam, where his character gets um, lessons about how to kiss girls from the ghost of Humphrey Bogart, which is quite funny. He didn't actually direct that, but it is one of his better acting performances. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting film about the Nostalgia, which is sort of light and frothy and amusing. It's a good date movie. And then on Wednesday evening, uh, Berwick Film Society's uh, November production of Gods and Men. Which is one of the best films of, uh, what are we now, 2011? Yeah, still last year. It's a fantastic uh, French-Arabic drama about um, a group of uh, monks in a, in a North African country whose uh, monastery is under threat. I mean, it doesn't sound like gripping stuff, but it's, it's one of those films which is incredibly understated, and it becomes all about the relationships of these characters. It's, if you can get in the zone with it, it's fantastic. Right, sounds worth going to see. So, the Playhouse box office number is 01665 510785. And 01289 for the Maltings. Just before we go off the local listings, uh, first of all, just a quick plug for the Maltings tomorrow because it's Sunday nights by the Fireside, otherwise known as the Berwick Broadcasting Corporation, with another 40s-style radio play. Uh, 7 o'clock that one's going to start and it's free to get in, well worth going to see. And the other thing, and I don't know too much about this one, Daniel, because I think people just have to go down and see what's happening, is uh, every weekday during uh, the rest of this month and also during December, there are going to be films shown in the uh, cafe at the um, Annick Garden. Oh, OK. So that sounds uh, a good way to go and warm up between 10 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And all it says here is classic family films. Right. Well, I dare say there'll be a, some form of, form of comprehensive list on the Annick Garden, Garden website. And then December screenings of our festive favourites. Right. My, which we have many. Yes. I mean, my guess is it, It's a Wonderful Life will be among that. Since we're on festive subject, can we just say flashing forward to December the 17th, we'll be having a two-hour Christmas special. I bet you can't wait. Yes. And uh, I've already decided what we're going to do and we're having paul young back with a bit of luck yes, yes. so uh, yes, yes it fingers will. crossed it'll be fantastic it will be good on to the top 10 then and at number 10 we have the ides of march which is a not a workable political thriller i don't think george clooney is the great director that everyone makes him out to be you know i, I think i said last week that i think good night and good luck is a bit overrated you know all the stuff with intercutting joseph mccarthy into the real action doesn't quite work for me it doesn't break any new ground but you know as a thinking man's popcorn thriller it does its job 
Paranormal Activity 3 is at number 9. Not as snore-inducing as the second film, but it doesn't have the sort of the admirable intentions of the original, and no, they're milking it for all it's got, and it's, it's going to... No, this is where the series should stop. Number 8, The Help. Which is, you know, manipulative, a bit too long, and a bit too glossy and saccharine for its own good. It doesn't really get its hands dirty on the racial politics, but it is enjoyable. I like Emma Stone very much. She's shaping up to be a very good young talent. She was in uh, Crazy Stupid Love and Easy A not so long ago. Both of which, well, Crazy Stupid Love was a bit um, uneven, but she was one of the best things in that. So, it's enjoyable, but it's not as weighty as it needs to be. Number seven on its way down, but sadly not out, Johnny English Reborn. Yeah, I mean, I think we agree that it's disappointing. Clearly, it, it seems to be striking a chord, particularly with family audiences. There have been lots of people writing into sort of various radio programmes saying it was fantastic. And no, certainly there is nothing in it which is offensive or provocative in the way that, you know, a lot of things that are billed as children's films very often are completely duplicitous on that front. The problem is that it just, it's not a good vehicle for Rowan Atkinson, and, you know, the first film was a bit inert, and this is even more so. Right, next one is uh, The Rum Diary, Johnny Depp. I'm glad to see it's doing really well. I mean, I really like Bruce, Bruce Robinson as both a writer and a director. Um, check the back podcasts for um, mine and Paul Young's thoughts on With Nell and I, which we did about nine or ten months ago now, and you know, still thinking about it just makes me happy, because I really love that film. Um... I like Johnny Depp very much. I mean, it's it's a testament to his acting skills that he's he's something like forty eight, forty nine. He would swear he was twenty five. He hasn't aged. He doesn't at age all. at all. Absolutely not. And also, Amber Heard does a very good supporting performance, and she is shaping up to be pretty decent. I also think that Robinson has managed to nail the tone of Hunter S. Thompson's novel, and which is you know quite an achievement considering he threw most of it away when he was writing it. So, I don't think it's up there with Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. You know, it's a bit ramshackle but it's enjoyable and that and the Gilliam film will make a good double bill. Number five, a bit of a who's who of Hollywood here, Eddie Murphy, um, Ben Stiller, Matthew Broderick and Tower Heist. Brett Ratner's best film, none of that's saying a great much, I mean it does riff on a whole lot of better films, there are big references to the Italian job and trading places particularly in the introduction of Eddie Murphy's character but no, it's reasonably funny and considering how bad Brett Ratner has been in the past, reasonably funny is quite remarkable. Number four, Justin Timberlake's latest outing, In Time. Good premise, poor execution. Andrew Nichol, who's the guy who directed Gattaca and scripted The Truman Show, he does have form as a director, and there's nice little visual gags about you know, having time on your hands and you know, a cup of coffee costing four hours and that sort of thing. And, of course, the central conceit of Logan's Run, which is everyone gets to a certain age and yeah. then they have to die. So, it's a nice idea, and it would have worked as a half-hour Twilight Zone episode, or at push a sort of longer episode of um, Tales of the Unexpected, you know, that Roald Dahl famously wrote in the late 70s and early 80s. But as a full-length film, it wears its heart so much on its sleeve that it quickly runs out of steam. Number three, Jamie Bell, so it can do no wrong, The Adventures of Tintin. Yeah, I think the story is a little bit stodgy, because they haven't quite worked out how to put the three yeah. uh, stories together, because it's Secret of the Unicorn, uh, Red Rackham's Treasure, and The Crab with the Golden Claws. And that does mean that some of the best things about those things, like the shunken, like Professor Calcutta, like the sunken submarine, they get left out for some reason. But the motion capture is the best I've ever seen. The set pieces are absolutely spectacular. So it's not first-rate Spielberg, but it's very good fun. Number two, a film I'm quite looking forward to seeing at some stage, After Christmas. Yeah, it's not first-rate, Ardman, and uh, no, not to sound like a Scrooge, but I'm still a bit despondent about the fact that a big Christmas film has come out and yeah, it's not it's even not December. It's not far away. Yes, but it's Get not... Your tinsel it's out. not Okay, when Advent <laughs> starts, that one you can have... Okay, fine. I'm clearly in the minority on that front. Um, 
it's clearly striking a chord with its target audience. I do think that there are things in it which are affectionate and charming, and the, the voice cast is pretty good, particularly Bill Nye is the sort of grandfather Santa figure. It's not Curse of the Were-Rabbit, but no, it's, it's fun, but nothing more than that. And at number one, probably not a surprise, but probably not our favourite film mm. of last week, was it? Immortals. It's garbage. The big problem with it is that it can't decide whether it wants to be 12 certificate fluff in the line of Clash of the Titans or you go back to the Ray Harryhausen films of the 1980s. It doesn't just know whether it wants to be that or a full-on 18 certificate romp with blood and guts in the manner of, you know, sort of more sort of Conan the Barbarian era. It doesn't do justice to the Greek myths. The 3D is absolutely atrocious, you know. Wrath of the Titans comes out next year and no, that will probably be rubbish, but not as rubbish as this. So not John Hurt's greatest hour? No, I mean, John Hurt and John Hurt is one of these actors who just works and works and works, and that often means that he turns up in bad films as the best thing in them. I mean, um, Donald Sutherland was in The Eagle recently, and he's one of the best things in that film, but he's on screen for literally five minutes. Oh, I think there was a little bit more to The Eagle than that. Yeah, well, there were, there were interesting things in it. Well, you like, I think you liked it more than I did, but yeah. Donald Sutherland's performance in it is pretty damn good. I'll okay. give you... Right, uh, our cult film uh, this week is going to be, is it Bad Lieutenant, Bad Lieutenant? It's Bad, Lu it's bad Lieutenant, because we're American. in America. Right. Yes. Okay. Radio. Great song from the early 70s there, Elkie Brooks and Pearl's a singer. Love to hear that. It's pretty good. Elkie is going to be here, it's uh, actually Wednesday the 30th of November and it's currently sold out, so, uh, but do keep an eye on it, you may be able to get some returns, possibly, as the month progresses. Okay, this week's, uh, classic is the bad lieutenant. Yeah. American uh, lieutenant. Why yes. Can't, why can't they speak words properly? <laughs> <laughs> Try saying that to Abel Ferrari, you wouldn't get far. So, Bad Lieutenant, 1992 crime drama directed by Abel Ferraro, who is, to put it bluntly, one of the most difficult and uncompromising filmmakers of our time. He's uh, no, known for not suffering fools at all, whether on screen in his films or in interviews. He's, he's you know, famously sort of you know, sworn on the Letterman show, walked off the... You know, whenever giving interviews yeah. for his films. So he, you have to get on the right side of him very quickly, but he is a good filmmaker. Um, brief history of his career, he cut his teeth at the end of the 70s with a film called Driller Killer, which got uh, caught up in the Video Nasty scandal over here, the Video Nasty scandal, which I dare say you'll remember, but a lot of people won't be familiar with. Back yeah. in the days of when the no the video market had just uh, exploded in yeah. in britain uh the director of public prosecutions impounded about 60 or 70 titles of uh, horror films from uh, from america and europe in particular which were deemed to be obscene under the video recordings act and their definition of obscene was uh, likely to deprave and corrupt a significant proportion of their likely audience it was back in the days when the censors felt they had a moralistic duty to tell people what they couldn't couldn't watch on the grounds that it was morally wrong whereas now yeah. they're much more sort of nuanced and sensible saying you're the one who makes the decision we just have to make sure that there's yeah. nothing in it which is yeah. illegal which um no we we live in a luxurious position from that front i mean driller killer's an interesting film it is very difficult to sit through like all for as work, but there are interesting things in it. Um, he continued to build his reputation on the indie circuit in the 80s with things like Miss 45, which is a, a problematic, but again, interesting, it's a rape-revenge thriller, so no, it doesn't sound like the most glamorous thing in the world, and it, there are scenes in it which are difficult to deal with. More notably, in the late 80s, he made a film called China Girl, which was his retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but set in the Asian community, and there's a famous anecdote that uh, may be an urban myth, that when they were test screening it, the studio said, we really like it, but the ending's very downbeat, can you change it? He said, 
It's Romeo and Juliet. Have you not read Shakespeare? <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. When Bad when he was making Bad Lieutenant, he was in an interesting point in his career because he was he was making a couple of efforts that sort of brought him very briefly into the mainstream because he'd made King of New York with Christopher Walken in, which is held up by quite a lot of Walken's fans as one of his best performances. Um, he made Body Snatchers, which was the second remake of the Doug's, of the, the Don Siegel film from the 50s, previously yeah. made by Philip Kaufman, which is still the scariest version. That version is very... Uh, Ferrara's version is very interesting because it's pared the story right down, it's set on a military base, and it's very good. And uh, just after this, he made Dangerous Game with Madonna, in which she plays a, ru a washed-up rubbish actress, and surprise, surprise, she does a very good job. <laughs> no, surely not. Well, she's all right in Evita, but the rest of the time she's a bit ropey. So, this is um, scripted by um, a girl called Zoe Lund, aka Zoe Tamales, who was a model that Ferrara discovered when he was making Ms. 45, and she also turns up in the film as Harvey Keitel's stick-thin heroin dealer. It, it cost a million dollars to make, took just over twice that over a long period of time, and received a bit of critical attention. Roger Ebert um, singled out Harvey Keitel's performance as one of the best he'd ever seen, and you no, know, I don't always agree with Ebert, but on this occasion we are completely aligned. There was a sister film, or spiritual sequel to this made a couple of years ago, which is where many people may know the name Bad Lieutenant from. It was a film called Bad Lieutenant Port of Corn, New Orleans, directed by Werner Herzog and starring Nicolas Cage. And when we were sort of looking at the film, yeah. that you were getting it confused. Basically what happened is that the producer of Bad Lieutenant, the original, is a guy called Ed Pressman, has ownership of the name rather than the, the film yeah. itself and went to Herzog saying, look, I think we can do a different story with this. And apparently, although the film is, you know, had some success of its own and was quite well received, there is a bit of bad blood between Ferrara and Herzog because, no, neither of them has seen each other's film, but Ferrara took the attitude of anyone who's trampling on my work, you no know, deserves the worst from me. I mean, he, no, he didn't go so far as suing or anything like that, yeah. but just basically they, they're not going to be sharing a drink anytime soon. So the plot summary of Bad Lieutenant is... It's set in New York in uh, the present day, so early 90s, and you have an unnamed police lieutenant played by Harvey Keitel, who uh, at around that time had uh, just played Mr. White in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, he's working the streets of New York, and he is every bit as corrupt as the people he is chasing. He's deeply in debt to the mob through a series of elaborate wages he's made on the outcome of a baseball series. He is addicted to cocaine and heroin. Now he, there's a sequence early on where he drops his young nephews off to school, and immediately after their back is turned, he uses a Coke spoon. Yeah. And uh, he often steals drugs from the scenes of drug busts to sell on the street so that he can fund his other habit, which is ladies of the night. Um, he's called upon to investigate um, a crime where a nun, played by Frankie Thorne, has been brutally raped in a church, and she has already forgiven the people who've attacked her for reasons that's very difficult to explain if you don't have an understanding of the Christian concept of grace. And gradually his life falls apart, he undergoes a radical change of character, perhaps even at the cost of his life. So there's a lot in there that on the surface you might think, well that's not a film that I want to watch. And yeah. certainly it's very difficult to sit through. But it's arguably Ferrara's most audacious work as a filmmaker, and many would argue it's his best film. If you compare it to the Herzog version. The Herzog version with Nicolas Cage, you know, the, which is, like I say, a sister film to this, that is very much rooted in the traditions of black comedy because you have, 
Nicolas Cage doing the slightly over-the-top performance that he does in things like Leaving Las Vegas yeah. and Wild at Heart, which, no, when he's, when he's got a good director behind him, he, he does very, very well. Now, we'll come to a new Nicolas Cage film at the end of the programme because he's got another one out this week. Whereas this Bad Lieutenant is very much rooted in tragedy. No, it's a film which has, like I say, strong violence, drug abuse, language, um, nudity, sex, and one rape scene, although obviously you don't see everything in that. But it does have substance all the way through it because it is a story about catholic redemption and yeah. the burden of guilt and unbearable human suffering constructed around one of the greatest performances of the 1990s i mean in order to believe in considering the way that i've set up the lieutenant the lieutenant character song i slipped into that as well <laughs> yes. um in order to believe in the lieutenant you need an actor who's got weight experience and a threatening screen presence and in terms of ticking those three boxes no one does that better than harvey Keitel. when you look back on his career he was in his prime in the 70s when he did things like mean streets and taxi driver and ridley scott's first film the duelists which won a prize at Cannes, in which is you no know, two napoleonic soldiers crossing paths over history and keep fighting each other and fighting yeah. each other um he had a reputation throughout his career it's one of the reasons he got on with ferrari is both of them have a reputation for being difficult famously he walked off the set of apocalypse now uh, in the early stages of filming and that's why martin sheen got the role that he yeah. did um then there's you no know, for people who sort of follow anecdotes around um filmmaking there is something called the harvey keitel story about him well, I can't say it on the air because it is a bit explicit, but it involves Eyes Wide Shut, his member, and Nicole Kidman's hair. It's a performance of such raw and unmitigated honesty that even when he's in his most unspeakable moments, even when he's... Well, there's a scene that I'll come to later on, which I'll... No, I'll, I'll tiptoe around because it's very difficult to describe. I mean, it's 18 certificate territory, so I'm doing the best I can, but even in his most unspeakable moments, you genuinely feel the torture and the burdens on yeah. this character. And as he descends further and further into hell on the streets of New York, you know, facing with his growing personal problems and this case which is almost impossible to solve you really yeah. find yourself going with it you know it's a performance of blood sweat tears and god knows what else basically i mean now Keitel obviously has a method background so he clearly threw himself into the role in terms of his back catalogue the film that ta um, bad lieutenant is closest to is taxi driver because like martin scorsese's film you have two characters who are two central characters who are sensibly driven obsessive loners who are in you know, a situation which is, you know the the city around them is steeped in sin and corruption and sleaze and there in the case of taxi driver it's it's god's lonely man at the heart of it who sort of subversively fights yeah. against yeah. this by well trying not to step over into the very violence that he's fighting against i mean in the case of taxi driver Travis Bickle is very much positioned as God's lonely man, whereas the lieutenant, it's much more ambiguous because he is so corrupted and so very much has one foot in this world and one foot yeah. in the next that you don't know whether he should be trusted. Whereas with Bickle, even in the moments of sort of real darkness in Taxi Driver, you're always sort of on his side. And Scorsese is sort of almost admitted to this comparison because he put Bad Lieutenant, I think, at number two on his greatest films of the 90s list. Uh, interesting. So, yeah, and he knows a thing or two about yes, films. We've actually got his new film, uh, Hugo, coming out next week. Oh, so, we'll talk, uh, or week after next, maybe. So we'll talk about him soon. So at heart, Bad Lieutenant is, like I say, a story of Catholic redemption. And you have a character in The Lieutenant, played by Harvey Keitel, who is haunted by all the mistakes that he has made in the past and all the regrets that he has about the way he lives his life are tempered by the fact that he knows it's all his fault. And it's the whole thing about... Uh, I mean, I'm, I don't... I can't claim to be an expert about Catholicism. Um, no, I, I certainly wasn't brought up as a Catholic, and I don't yeah. know many Catholics. But it, it's that thing about sort of 
every single sin you commit being sort of numbered and counted and kept somewhere and you have to sort of continually confess formally in order to sort of take the burden yeah. away and no, it's you, know, you can debate whether catholicism has any validity as much as you like but for the purposes of this film that's what it's based on so you have the increasing desperation of the character and there's a sequence in a nightclub where he's meeting with the mob's bookie and he's just put no having put down a wager of five thousand dollars and lost he says no there's no way they can win three games in a row make it 25 and the bookie says a line something like you know what it would just be a lot simpler for us if you let us kill you because your wages are just getting so absurd that we can't take your money yeah because we know you haven't got it and the many years that the lieutenant spent on the street has made him so hard-hearted that he's incapable of forgiving people and he doesn't understand the grace and the mercy of God anymore and that's that's codified in a scene where his nieces receive their first communion so they're up in the, yeah. the front of the screen receiving the the wafers from the priest whereas he's sort of in the back at the shadows just he can't connect he doesn't yeah. even want to look at them because it's yeah. The, the purity of God is so repellent because he's so steeped in sin and corruption there are a number of deeply striking sequences in Bad Lieutenant which convey that seemingly impossible prospect of Christian redemption in the midst of such a horrible horror, frankly, on screen. Yeah. I mean, the way I described it at the start, you think, well, this is just going to be a... I don't want to watch this. This is an unpleasant experience. But there is... You know, it's like the line in the Gospels about, you know, you don't need a doctor for the well, you need a doctor for the sick. And that's yeah. exactly what this film has. The most extraordinary of those comes in the church about three quarters of the way through where Cartel is interviewing the nun about why she won't you know give any information about about her attack who her, her yeah. attackers are or what they look like and she says no i don't want to identify them i've already forgiven them and if this act against this violation against me means that god's grace can be bestowed upon them then the action was worthwhile and that's a very no it's a it's an odd logic to take yeah particularly you know if you're <laughs> someone who doesn't have a sort of religious heavy stuff yes. yeah it's heavy stuff and a lot of people would just go oh don't be stupid uh, but no for the purposes of this and then she the, so after explaining herself and you know, regardless of whether or not you agree with her she goes away to sort of deal with her various duties Kaitel has if effectively a nervous breakdown in the church turns around from the altar and sees a vision of christ standing in the aisle with his you know, the nail marks in his hands Incredible. and feet beckoning him towards him and he sort of crawls weeping and wailing along the floor saying how can you love these two men who have done something so utterly hideous and it's an absolutely extraordinary scene in which the temporal and the spiritual yeah, collide yeah. and you understand just the just the unconditional passion of of Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of trying to be balanced with people who aren't sort of Christians yeah. who are tuning in, but for, for someone who is, even someone like myself who has had a lot of long Christian faith, it's a very, very powerful moment, and no, you I'm really sure, feel yes. for this guy, yeah. and it's so transcendent. This vision then spurs Kaitel on into tracking down the men who've raped the nun, because he gets yeah. a sort of tip off from his dealer. That's the way it works. Um, but rather than doing the conventional justice thing of sort of turning them in and booking them and you know, filling yeah. in all the forms and sending them away for a good long time he gives them all the money he has puts them on the first bus out of town and says basically don't come back and i'll never talk about this again he does this against his better judgment but he knows in his heart that it's the right thing yeah. to do and it's it it goes back you know, sorry to keep quoting scripture at you but it goes back to um the quote about thomas in the gospels you know you believe because you have seen blessed are those you haven't seen yeah and now, having had this extraordinary experience in the church, he actually realizes that, no, what I need to do goes against my basic convictions as a, as a fallible, sinful yeah. human, 
but it's the right thing to do and it the film ends not to give it away but with the lieutenant pulling up outside um the, to meet the mob's bookie and being gunned down and what seems like a horrible tragic end is actually well maybe that's a blessed relief maybe he's yeah. you know, now that he understands the great miracle yeah. he's been released from this horrible prison of earth and gone to carry yeah. on his duties in heaven because Abel Ferrara is a grindhouse director, someone who you know, cut his teeth in sort of horror and gore and sleaze, those aspects of Bad Lieutenant are not, they're not handled in a sort of airy-fairy, sugar-coated way of, oh, isn't God fantastic and happy, clappy yeah. stuff. Instead, they're sort of ecstatic interludes to very brutal scenes of, like I say, nudity, violence and copious swearing. It's one of a very small handful of films that got an NC-17 certificate in America, which is our, their equivalent of the 18. Yeah. And there is a general consensus among distributors that in the wake of Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls, which got a record number of Razzie Awards, if you give anything an NC-17 certificate, it means effectively art house or pornography in the eyes of the, yeah. the viewing yeah. public. So, you know, Ferrara was yeah. yeah yeah I mean Ferrara was brave to a allow that rating and b not to cut anything out of, I mean, yeah. but, uh, so um, one of the reasons it got an NC seventeen or an eighteen here without being cut is that uh, there are several very realistic depictions of drug taking and if and certainly if you um, we were talking about fear and loathing when we did the top 10. Basically, the BBFC are very hard on drug taking. Anything that involves yeah. realistic taking of drugs, straight in at 18, because, you no, know, that's, yeah. that's their stance. So there are long, in, uninterrupted takes in which Keitel meets with his dealer, played by Zoe Lund, and she sort of does the thing of warming heroin on a spoon and then injecting yeah. it into his arm. And obviously, it's not real heroin, yeah. but it's, it's done very Quite realistically. Yeah. And the, the point about it is that it... Even though it's done in that sort of long, uninterrupted take, it's it doesn't glamorise drug taking at all. I mean, this and the coke spoon scene at the start is shot in such slow and clinical detail, like, um, to go back to Eyes Wide Shut, like the orgy scenes yeah. in Eyes Wide Shut, they're shot so clinically and so coldly that they're not titillating or eroticising yeah. at all. And as with Requiem for a Dream, about eight years later, the Darren Aronofsky film, which is also about sort of drug abuse and people's lives falling apart, the high of taking the drug is cancelled out or overridden by the immediately painful consequences. Yeah. Ferrara also shows, I mean, it's very difficult to do a rape scene in any film. And when you're sort of talking about sort of what makes a good rape scene, it's almost, it's, you know, it's almost an infantile question to yeah. ask. You know, we have to be very careful. Ferrara had experience of this sort of area because, like I say, he'd made Miss 45, which... There are problematic things in, but they're problematic for the right reasons rather than because they're glorifying yeah. or eroticizing the act of rape. And he does manage to avoid falling into the trap of something like I Spit on Your Grave, in which we, we're sort of, we condone the violence because we're caught up in the, the revenge that the victim then takes. And I, yeah. I, I still think Spit on Your Grave, and a lot of people have written about it saying it's a, a definitive final girl film or it's empowering. I still think it's completely reprehensible and awful, certainly yeah. just in the way that it's so graphic for no reason the rape scene does very much focus on the emotion of the people involved so it has a it, most of the stuff is in close-up on the nun's face it reminded me in a way of the rape scenes from roman polanski's tess his adaptation of tess of the derbyfields with uh, natasha kinski in yeah which you know it's it's very emotive and and again to reinforce the christian element of the story that sequence where the nun is screaming there's a ma there's a jump cut very quickly in which it randomly cuts to Christ screaming on the cross, and yeah. again it's you no know, it it comes out of nowhere and it lasted just a couple of seconds but it's a very inventive way yeah, of saying sure, yes. you know what this guy bore every single one of our sins and every yeah. single pain we'd ever feel it's just a, it's just a two second thing but it works brilliantly well. 
the most controversial scene in it, and again, I'll, I'll tread around this as carefully as I can, but there's there's no sort of sideways way to put it. Now, I, I apologise if younger children are listening. Um, there's a sequence about two-thirds of the way through where Keitel pulls over two girls in a car and finds that they have been smoking marijuana and are driving without a licence. And rather than turn them in, he asks one of them to take her clothes off and the other one to mimic fellatio, to use it, while he relieves himself outside the car. Is that delicate enough yes, for you? Yeah, yeah I think you so. get the idea. And this was a very controversial scene at the time. James Furman, who was the head of the B head censor of the BBFC when this came out, was asked on many occasions why he didn't cut the scene at all, because it's completely uncut in the, yeah. in the finished version of the film. And the answer he gave was that he thought that it was so repulsive that no sane person could possibly be turned on by it. And that's absolutely true. I mean the scene is repulsive for all the right reasons, and it goes on a little bit too long, but it does reinforce the sense of desperation and distance of the lieutenant, the fact that he can't connect with people, whether it's, you know, his nieces at the communion or actually just going to bed with these girls. He's got to do it the hard way. I mean, or is it just over the top? No, it, I mean, had it gone on any longer and shown any more, it would have been over the top. I see where you're coming up from. But it just about gets away with that. I don't think it's the best scene in the film by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly it does, it does have some sort of power in just conveying the desperation of the character. Um, I do think there are flaws with Bad Lieutenant. I mean, quite apart from the fact that because I've been sort of tiptoeing around, you get the impression that it's very difficult to watch. And certainly it's not, if you've got an 18-year-old lad, it's not the first 18 certificate you should show him because he yeah. might be put off the thing for life. Um, even as we invest so deeply in Keitel's performance, we can't help wondering about the, the central contrivance, which is how has he managed to keep his job for so long? Yeah. I mean, even if all his colleagues were turning so much of a blind eye, the fact of the matter, he's not exactly working hard to cover up his, his sort of coke and heroin habits. And as the character study deepens, the crime plot almost becomes peripheral because it sort of drifts in and out of the conversations. And in its weaker moments, like the scene I've just described, it can feel like Ferrara is sometimes testing our metal for its own sake. I don't think that scene is completely guilty of that, but there are little moments, particularly in the first sex scene with the ladies of the night, when you think, yeah, I'm not entirely sure why you're doing this for so long and the music's a bit off-putting, so yeah, just move on. I think in the end, however, it does rise above those flaws as a pretty triumphant example of how exploitation cinema can explore serious and passionate ideas in a way which is often more provocative and evocative than its mainstream equivalents. I think Keitel is outstanding. Ferrara is a merciless director, but he gets the job done. It's a very tough watch. I mean, certainly if you're not familiar with Abel Ferrara, start with something like Dangerous Game or Body Snatchers, because they're a lot easier to deal with. But if you can go the distance, it is a profound and deeply moving piece of work. Mm. The one I guess a lot of people will find too much. Yeah, I mean, like I say, if you're not into sort of if you haven't i think as a useful comparison if you can get through seven without wincing the david fincher film which famously ends with you know somebody's head ending up in a box sorry to spoil it if you can get through seven you should be able to get through bad lieutenant but maybe sort of watch it in a couple of sittings yeah i mean i'll just read a text that's come in so yes. um you know see where other people are coming from feel very uncomfortable watching rape scenes don't like them at all it's the worst crime in the world i struggle to watch these films and i think a lot of people would have that view yeah you know, at some points you know when when does 
depicting them in movies, even if it's for serious intent, become too much. I they they yeah. set the wrong side of the line. Yeah, I completely understand the point. Who's the text from? That's from Mick. Right. I completely understand where you're coming from, Mick, and I'm, I take a very hard line on this as well. The, the examples that I've cited, whether it's Bad Lieutenant or Roman Polanski's Tess, those are films which... The, it, I mean, it, it is a horrible crime, and it's not something which should ever be put in a film for entertainment purposes, because there is nothing entertaining about rape in the least, and I don't care what, you know, people have made I Spit in Your Grave or The New York Ripper say, because they're just, they're just horrible. I think that what it comes down to is, well, A, is it narratively worth it in the sense that is it central, and, and also... You have to make a very clear judgment about the tone of it, because if you're just putting it in for the sake of shock, then yeah. no. But in this case, because it because it's the means to an end in terms of actually getting the character redeemed, and like I say, the emphasis is on the emotional response of the characters rather than the actual physical violation. That's the only way you can do it. So it's still uncomfortable because the act yeah. is innately uncomfortable, but there are ways of showing it in a way which isn't totally reprehensible and morally bankrupt. Interesting. Does that answer your question thoroughly? I yeah? think it does. Yes. Let's take a break. Yes. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Right, something a little less challenging next week. Yeah, uh, because, you know, we've been sort of feeling uncomfortable in the studio just talking <laughs> about it, but next week we should do something a lot more light-hearted and a lot more fun. Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the latest from Edgar Wright, and uh, I would hold as a candidate for a modern cult classic. Great. Good. And Shall it's only a 12, so there's nothing unpleasant in it at all. Shall we talk about the new releases? Yes, definitely. Uh, Magic Trip? Uh, yeah, Magic Trip we can start with. Yep. Okay, um, new documentary from Alex Gibney and Alison Elwood. Alex Gibney was one of the uh, guys behind uh, Enron, the smartest guys in the room, which was a very good documentary about the collapse of the American energy giant. It's a documentary about uh, Ken Kesey, or Casey, I can't, uh, don't know whether to pronounce it, who was the guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, which was then made into a film for which yep. um, you know, it's one of only three films to win the big five of Oscars, the others being It Happened One Night and The Sands of the Lambs. Um, um, it's a story about his journey. He set off on a wild LSD-induced journey or trip in one way or another to the 1964 World's Fair in New York. During this trip, he was joined by the merry band of pranksters, who were this counterculture group, and Neil Cassidy, who appears in Jack Kerouac's On the Road and painted the immortal magic bus that features in the Who song. All of the footage from the film is taken from literally hundreds of hours of 16 millimeter footage that was filmed by Kesey for a documentary about his journey and because of you know the, their brains being addled by acid they never completed it themselves but Alex Yibney found the footage and he now would have had unrestricted access to it and sort of stuck it back together yeah. and they have done a pretty good job of telling their story I mean the potential with all of these kinds of stories about sort of drug-induced trips is that they can just descend into into sort of boredom because it's like being it's like you know the situation where you're in the room with a dr with a room full of people and you're the only one who isn't drunk yeah and they're all sort of behaving like total bores and you're just not interested. But I do think this is so, I think this is interesting as an historical document because it does evoke that sort of mid-60s psychedelia hippy-trippy feeling. Yeah. I don't know whether it's got much more interesting beyond that, but if you're into 60s culture, you should probably check it out. Right. Next one. Very long title. Uh, very interesting to see. The audience loves it and the critics hate it, so we'll see where you are in it. The Twilight Saga, do Breaking Dawn Part 1. Yeah. I can't come up with short titles. <laughs> yes, well, Harry Potter is guilty yes. as charged. Um, the fourth instalment in the Twilight series, directed by Bill Condon, who made uh, Gods and Monsters. He made uh, Kinsey, which was the sort of... 
uh, biographical drama of Dr. Kinsey with Liam Neeson in, most recently Dream Girls, and he also wrote the screenplay for Rob Marshall's Chicago. So he has a finger in several yeah. pies. Based on the first half of the last book by Stephanie Meyer, uh, I can't recap the plot of the whole Twilight Saga because we'll be here forever, but basically Bella Swan, played by Kristen Stewart, has finally decided to marry the vampire Edward Cullen, played by Robert Pattinson, swoon, and uh, much to the chagrin of her best friend who is a werewolf called Jacob, played by Taylor Lautner, who is in abduction recently. So the marriage results in Bella getting pregnant and... Suffice to say, there is a difficult birth involved towards the end of it, and then there's going to be a big battle between vampires and werewolves featuring Michael Sheen as the king of the vampires. I'm completely agnostic about the Twilight series because I haven't read any of the books or seen any of the films, so I am naturally inclined to go in with an open mind and be optimistic. And certainly the critical derision around him is sort of 25% on Rotten Tomatoes, which yeah. is lower than the first instalment as well. It, it feels very suspect because... Critics, broadly speaking, have always been very down on fan culture, and particularly yeah. anything that's aimed towards young girls in, in the way that the Twilight series is. One of the arguments that people have often made about Twilight is that, well, the central character is just being manipulated, you know, she's just doing what the men are telling her. But actually, Bella does hark back to that tradition of resourceful gothic heroines like the Snow-like characters in Jane Austen or Emily Bronte. Like, she's a bit like Jane Eyre, in a way. Yeah. In that sort of sense of men fighting for her affections and going through this emotional turmoil, but eventually emerging triumphant and actually feeling loved. And if nothing else, it is refreshing to see a love story in cinemas in which the girl doesn't get the guy by wandering around in nothing but a pair of hot pants. The plot, also from a horror point of view, has an interesting body horror feel. The whole thing about sort of can a human and a vampire copulate, to put it that way, and sort of what's the child going to be like? I mean, it does hark back to the work of David Cronenberg, particularly things like The Brood and the remake of The Fly, um, which, um, you know, has Jeff Goldblum in one of, in one of his best performances. And, uh, you know, it's that whole thing of the child that Bella is carrying, is it human, is it vampire, is it somewhere in between, and is the existence of this child going to destroy her and everything the vampires stand for, and is the world going to collapse around them? If you've not seen the other films, this is obviously not the place to start, and there are still little problems just looking at the trailer with the CGI in the sense that, you no, know, the people turning into werewolves looks a bit ropey, but for what it is, it's perfectly decent, and while some people might be annoyed by the moodiness of it, I think it does hold together. Okay. Next one, Nicholas Cage, as we uh, said we would be previewing, and uh, Justice, uh, panned by the critics so far. Yeah, for the second week running, we have a Nicholas Cage film that basically should have gone straight to DVD, because last week we had Joel Schumacher's Trespass, which was awful. Um, directed by Roger Donaldson, who's actually a pretty decent director, because he made, um, well, amongst other things, um, Cocktail, the Tom Cruise film. Yeah. He did No Way Out, which is the the, perform the uh, thing that launched Kevin Costner's career. And actually, I think that's one of Kevin Costner's best performances. I know I've slated him in the past for being very wooden, but he is actually quite good in No Way Out. Also stars um, Sean Young, who was in Blade Runner. He's most famous recently for doing um, The World's Fastest Indian, in which Sir Anthony Hopkins played a New Zealander. And, you know, it was quite sort of oh, yeah. heartwarming and sweet, yeah. you know, sort of travelling across to set records, on land speed records, on an old Indian motorcycle. And it was sort of heartwarming and sweet yeah. and quite well put together. The story is, you now, Nicholas Cage is an ordinary guy, if you can believe that. Um, something bad happens to him. The mob come to him and say, you know, we can sort it out for you. You don't have to lift a finger. But occasionally we might, but no, in sometime in the future, we might ask for a return favour from you. So they sort his problem out. They come back to him a little bit later saying, now you've got to do us a favour. You've got to kill a guy. And he's you know, got to sort of do the transformation and you know, become yeah. a killer. 
It's completely perfunctory, basically. You know, it, it ticks all the boxes of a straight-to-DVD revenge thriller of just saying, yeah, we've got an ordinary guy, yes, we've got, you know, a shady, shady sort of mob or mafia figure, yes, we've got sort of no weapons, we've got some violence, we've got a bit of language, you know, it ticks all the boxes, tab A goes into slot B. So it's unremarkable, and it's not a great showcase for either Donaldson's skill or Nicolas Cage's talent, because like I say, I mean, a lot of people have slated Nicolas Cage for just doing the same sort of horse-fish performance all the time. <laughs> But when he gets a direct, when you have him like a, with a director like David Lynch, like Mike Figgis, like Werner Herzog, who understand that he's at his best when he's going slightly over the top. I mean, if you've seen yeah. him in Wild at Heart, he's fantastic. But you now that's when he's doing a sort of Elvis impersonations, and it's all slightly hokey. But he's brilliant. So the problem with this is that it's just too ordinary. It's not as bad as Trespass, but it is one to avoid. Next one on the list, then, is Welcome to the Rileys. Second film this week to feature Kristen Stewart. This has been on the shelf for a while because it's a 2010 release date, so it's, it's been sort of brought out as, yeah. as counter-programming for people who like Kristen Stewart but don't want to go and see her in Twilight. Directed by Jake Scott, whose only film of note before this was Plunkett and McLean, which was a, a sort of attempt to retell a 1740 story with a 90s sensibility. A pretty good performance by Liv Tyler, but not much else to recommend it. The story follows a couple called Doug and Lois. Uh, Doug is played by James Gandolfini, who many people will know from The Sopranos. And uh, Lois is played by Melissa Leo, who won uh, the Oscar for The Fighter this time last year, yep. or earlier this year. Um, the story is that they have lost their teenage daughter eight years ago. Uh, she has become agoraphobic. She can't leave the house because she's terrified of open spaces, hence agoraphobic. Um, he leaves to go to New Orleans for a business trip where he runs into a 17-year-old tearaway, played by Stuart, who is working in a strip club. And they form a sort of platonic bond and he eventually brings her home and she sort of settles in with the family and becomes their sort of surrogate daughter. Um, like I say, it's a clear and blatant case of counter-programming, but even considering that, it is quite charming. I mean, you know pretty much from that setup with sort of three main characters where it's going to pan out. You know that you know, Melissa Leo's character is going to overcome her agoraphobia and step out of the house. You know that James Gandolfini is going to, you know, have a, a sort of good, solid, platonic relationship yeah. with this guy. You know that Christian Stewart's going to turn her life around. So, you know, you can sort of sketch out the plot on the back of an envelope, but it does have good performances. I mean, Gandolfini obviously has acting chops to spare, but I think this and something like The Runaways, which Christian Stewart did about 12 months ago, does demonstrate she's a better actress than a lot of people give her credit for. So, so it's not something to rush out and see, but if you saw it on sort of DVD of a Sunday evening, it would be quite good. And finally, and this one sounds quite interesting, uh, another hard one I suspect to work through, but it's uh, Snowtown. Not quite as hard as Bad Lieutenant. No. Uh, <laughs> sounds if like nothing could be. <laughs> well, there are a couple of things that are tougher. I mean, Requiem for a Dream is up there, but that's, that's slightly different. So Snowtown's debut film by uh, Australian writer-director Justin Kurzel, based loosely on a true story. Um, it follows a 16-year-old boy called Jamie, played by Lucas Pittaway, who is living in a deprived area of Adelaide with his mother and two brothers. One day he is befriended by a John Bunting, played by Daniel Henschel, who becomes, who's sort of, you know, a, a sort of warm-hearted, uh, beardy guy who comes into the home and says, no, I'm, I can act as a mentor to you. There's a sequence in the trailer of him sort of cooking breakfast for the whole family. It's all done on handheld camera. And everything seems fine, but then gradually hints start coming through that actually he might, there's something monstrous going on underneath, and we're not quite sure about it. Yeah. It's really good, basically. Uh, the trailer is very slow, but it's very atmospheric. It, it's... It's a film that tricks you into letting your guard down so that you welcome this character in as much as the characters in the film do. And then as 
the true violent self of him gradually begins to emerge, you realise just sort of how wrong you've been. I mean, there are little hints in there of Kill List from uh, earlier this year, the Ben Wheatley film, which was, was very good, but again, very full-on. In terms of its references, there, there's two main sort of touchstones. One of them is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which was, a, a, again, a sort of early 90s film, which was shot like a sort of found footage sort of people following a serial killer around being completely unapologetic for his actions and a very interesting piece of work quite chilling the other thing is and you might remember this um 10 riddington place yes with richard yeah. attenborough yeah um in which based on the the christie murders in which you had no richard attenborough plays um a, a backstreet abortionist who um yeah. rapes and kills his his victims and buries them in the wall of his house and uh, has a very good performance by john hurt as the man framed for his crimes yeah and uh, i think i remember seeing john hurt interviewed on um i think it was paul o'grady where he described where paul o'grady said that he julie that richard adams performance made hannibal lecter look like a total weed <laughs> <laughs> so Lovely. that's that's i mean if you haven't Comparison. seen Ten running to play it's richard yeah. fleischer's best film so you should see it so those things are in the back of it there are some really great performances. The camera work is naturalistic and gritty. It is very atmospheric, so it's not going to be for everyone, but it's thoroughly recommended nonetheless. So that's uh, obviously uh, the film of the week. That's film of the week for people. I think because I think Snowtown's a fifteen. So for anyone under the age of fifteen, the film of the week is Twilight. Right. And what do you make of the rest of them? Um, Welcome to the Rides is pretty decent, but it's it's slightly televisual, so you might be waiting for that in DVD. Uh, justice should be avoided and magic trip only if you've got an interest in 60s culture because otherwise you might find bits of it a bit indulgent great well thanks for coming in uh back to the wilds of northumberland for yeah. you and we'll see you next saturday yes when we shall do scott pilgrim versus the world and have a lot of fun with it good look forward to that indeed thanks to everybody who's texted in this morning and whatever you're doing today have a great day i may see you in the marketplace a little bit later if you're coming into annick i'm out to uh, sell peel to save Raise some money for Lionheart Radio, which is what it's all about. Anyway, have a good week. See you next Saturday. Bye-bye. Lionheart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.